Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 48. My next guest is Colette Safhill. Colette is a wife, mother, therapist, and businesswoman. She is a friend, a daughter, and a terrible pianist, and a a reasonable singer. It is important to Colette to be aware of the whole person, not just one aspect. Colette's mother died when she was young, and she had what is fair to say a difficult childhood. This was followed by an ill-suited marriage at age 18, quickly followed by two kids. By the end of her 20s, she found herself in a rehab facility fearful, shameful, and hopeless. Despite her difficult childhood and her own struggles with addiction, Colette left rehab with the strong belief that she could make it better, although she wasn't sure how. She has a BA honors in philosophy and went on to study postgrad in person-centered therapy. Last year, Colette launched two separate drink brands, Myth Drinks that are non-alcoholic and Goat Drinks, which are energy drinks. Both have gone from startup to export in a year and are award-winning. It is an area in her life, however, where she struggles with fear and vulnerability and really with being human. Supported by her incredible husband, friends, and four children, Colette says she goes through most days trying to be kind and honest and remember that she is blessed and it'll all be okay. Colette also has a partnership with Dr. Angela Wright, a clinical sexologist, and coach Gemma Taylor, a former strong woman. And they are soon to release their book, The Doctor, the Therapist, and the Coach, following from the release of their first podcast series. To quote Emily Dickinson, I dwell in possibilities, and indeed she does. Take a listen. Hi, Colette. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. So let's dive right in. So what was life like before recovery for you? Oh, that's a big question. And a long time ago. I think, you know, the answer to that changes. I can, I can remember when I gave my first AA chair, my first AA kind of hope experience talk. I know I've maybe only been in recovery for a few months. And I spoke a lot about this kind of victim space and this sort of darkness and how all these things had happened to me and it wasn't Mm -hmm. my fault and and all of that. And, And I guess what's 22, 23 years later now. And maybe I have I have a lot of days sober and more perspective. And I think that at some level, I knew I was causing myself a problem, which sort of made it worse. This wasn't just something that was happening to me. Things were happening right. that weren't great and they were out of my control. But my mechanism for coping with them, I was doing to myself. And I think I knew that. So my life was very chaotic. Mm-hmm. It was very hectic. Someone in recovery, early days recovery, an older man said to me once that if a wounded rabbit cries, a fox comes running and it's not to help. And I think, I know, I think I met quite a few foxes. I think there's something about particularly women in addiction that we tend to find ourselves in the same places. Um, I've spoken to a lot of women and during their using or their drinking, we all seem to find ourselves in the same places with the same behaviours and the same outcomes. So uh, I had a proper job. I had a university degree. To most, I suppose externally, to most people, it looked like I was functioning quite well. There were the whispers behind my back of all, you know, she drinks a lot. You know, she drinks a lot. And I had quite young children at the time as well from my first marriage. And the one thing I did realise was there was nowhere to go for help, nowhere that wouldn't be punitive. There was the fear of losing my job or losing my children. 
I was a single parent, so losing my job would mean losing my house. And and it was all around that kind of, it sort of kept this secret going and almost gave no escape ladder. There seemed to be no way out that, that wouldn't, that, that wasn't fear, you know, wasn't full of fearful. Um, but I would say that the mechanics of my story were probably the same as most women in addiction. I drank a lot with the behaviours that go with that. I was never into drugs or anything. For me, it was always drink and it was only ever going to end one way. So, um, so it was, it was just, it was a mess. It was, it was a big mess all the time. But I mean, where you're from in the UK, drinking is culturally acceptable like most places, but it really most is. state-sponsored, you could say. Yeah, <laughs> it's Olympic activity. It is. And interestingly, these years later, past the end of my own drinking, if we're simply talking quantities, I'm not a particularly big woman. I'm, I'm quite short and quite small. Mm-hmm. But if, if we're just talking quantities, I, I actually didn't drink a huge amount of quantity compared to what is being drunk now as almost like a benchmark of normal. I see. Um, And I find that really alarming, really alarming. And I find the behaviours that go with it really alarming. You know, why we have to have armed police on the street, why, you know, we have triage tents like you would have in like a field camp in a war zone to to bring people off the streets at night because they've been drinking to to treat them. You know, the the kind of A&E accident and emergency um, intake, the... The, the violence that goes that goes with those behaviours that appears to be just accepted. And and that I just don't understand. And I do think that's got worse in the last well, quarter of a decade since I stopped drinking. Right. And as a woman who is a single parent suffering from addiction, what do you think the gender differences are? You know, and you're a therapist as well. And, and we'll get into your other business as well, which is very exciting. But as a woman, it is different. And I appreciate you saying there there is some differences than men and women. Can you speak a little bit about that in your experience? Yeah. So although I am a therapist, I will only speak about my own experience and my own family sure. experience. So I, my mother was alcoholic and she died when I was a child. She, she, she died by suicide when I was a child as a result of her addiction. And I kind of knew even then that she hadn't died from drinking. She died from prejudice, that it was, it was, there was nowhere to go with it. It's almost there's nobody more pariahed in our society than a drunken mother at the school gates. It's like the lowest of the low. You know, historically, we have gin as mother's ruin because of the infant mortality immortality rates during the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. in the UK. And rather than the horrific public health conditions, you know, being being taken into account, women were blamed for being bad mothers. Right. Um, we, we, we have, um, you know, men drink too much. They tend to do it in the street. Women drink too much. They tend to do it in the home. And, and then because there are often children involved, then it becomes a moral question. And then where do you go for help? I also think that women can transact their body in, in a way that we're almost socialised to do. Acceptable. Yeah, it's, it's encouraged, isn't it? Right. Um, I have two quite young daughters and I'm frequently horrified by the kind of clothes, the only clothes that are available them, for them to buy now. They're kind of just adolescent. Um, and, and and the kind of images that, that society puts with that, you know. The pressure that comes with that too, right? Yeah, and that objectification. I, I cannot, in a slightly different vein, I guess, a different part of my academic knowledge, I simply cannot believe that as women we've come to 2023 to hear our young women talking about opening an OnlyFans account in order to, to be able to feed the children. I can't believe that we've come back to that as a society. 
but that is probably indicative of, of what addiction can do. You know, you end up, you know, you, you, you end up maybe making decisions that then you're left literally holding the baby with, which then require right. a set of other behaviors and other responsibilities and other accountabilities. And there's no time or space or help and lots of foxes. Right. Lots and lots of foxes. However, you've navigated that. Tell me a little bit about what that looked like for you. So I, I did navigate it, but I didn't navigate it on my own. I was really, really fortunate. So I had a car crash. I crashed my car over the drink drive limit one morning from the night before I was drinking. And I was arrested. And I went on a really, because up until that point, I would have said I was just about holding it together. It was beginning to fray at the edges, but I was just about holding my life together. Uh-huh. But when I was held overnight in order to sober up enough to to be interviewed, and then I came home, and my children had gone to their my ex husband's um, house, and I didn't go to work because I was actually injured in the crash because I had a proper like nine to five job, mm-hmm. and so without those boundaries of my children and my work, I had nothing but drink because there was literally nothing else in my life. Drink was my only relationship; it was my mm. only thing that was mine. So I just drank and I drank really heavily for three weeks. Um, And I'm very grateful that that was the extent of my extreme drinking. That was the worst it ever got. And it happened really quickly for me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't tell you night from day. I couldn't tell you what was real and what was fantasy. I couldn't really tell you anything. I don't remember much about that time. Mm -hmm. I also don't know how I got the drink because I live quite remotely. But anyway, I decided that I I needed to stop. And that had been my pattern. So I was a daily drinker with occasional binges. But every now and then I would stop to... Mm -hmm to myself I wasn't my mother I think uh-huh. um so, yeah so I decided I would stop I remember because it was a Thursday and um about four days later I started hallucinating so I had oral and visual hallucinations um they were very corporeal so I can remember like chewing spiders legs in my mouth and things crawling out of my hair and uh-huh. my heart began to beat out of control and mm. Um, I was taken to hospital, into the local um, state hospital. And uh, whilst I'm grateful there was somewhere for me to go, there's certainly no well wellness happening there. Um, right. And they, yeah, they gave me, it was, and they gave me the equivalent of a medical cosh because apparently I tried to create an uprising and get everyone to leave and march against the establishment. And I, I think one of the disruptor always a disruptor. Right. Uh, so I... Um, Stay there for a week. During that time, I realized that all that was really available in this unit were um, pharmaceutical meds and sitting. (laughs) Sitting with a thousand yard stare. You know, there was no there was no interaction. There was no socialization of any kind. No, just containment. I was really fortunate in that the job that I had at the time, I worked for a large bank um, and my education meant that I was able to go into a private unit. So I went to Priory. Um, my ex-husband, in an act of extraordinary kindness, really did look after me. And he put all those things into place. Um, he never, never once blamed... We did not have a good marriage and we had a worse divorce. But he never once blamed me or was hurtful or spiteful for, for this. And he arranged for me to be moved into Priory Group. And he arranged my life so that I could stay there for as long as I needed. And I was in there for months. You know, he looked after the dog and the cat and the house and spoke to my employers and, and all of and all, just He just made it all go away, everything. And I was in there for months. And I guess I just couldn't initially accept that this is what was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think initially I was taken in with suspected anxiety or PTSD from the crash or whatever we make up for these words. And then I met this therapist in there. She's called Margaret. 
and she said to me, the thing is, you're a raging alcoholic. And unless we can call it what it is, we can't treat it. And there was just something about that that was just so true. And I sort of realized that I was being protected from the words, but because of that, I was being disallowed the help. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's really when I started to get better. The unit I was in, we used to go to AA um, every night. We'd get bussed out and like the, the happy bus of hope or whatever it was called. <laughs> <laughs> and then once a week we were taken out to do activities, everything from kind of mini golf to bowling. And, and, and at the time I found it horrific, I've got to be honest. But looking back at it now, I realised I had nothing in my life. I nothing. Was in alcohol at that time alcohol and drink and work and that was it I had and fear huge amount of fear mm-hmm. and foxes uh, but I had nothing of mine nothing of fun nothing of play nothing of curiosity nothing to begin to fill that piece of paper you know and prior we did that um, so I came out in February and I realized that there are a lot of hours in a day <laughs> that don't have a drink in it right when that's what I'm doing um and I could have peeled the wallpaper off the walls I was just beside myself I never had another drink but I did go back into Priory for another month just to I think find my feet a bit I was a bit institutionalized by then as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then I came out and I had to begin that rebuild so the thing that I'd fought so hard not to happen had now happened I'd lost my job my children were living with my ex-husband I was about to lose my house even the dog had moved out you know there was kind of I knew I couldn't have my old friends because they were still drinking and I sort of had nothing and no one and was nowhere. And that was a really difficult year. It was a really difficult start. My ex-husband made it very much easier for me. I then, of course, went to court and lost my driving license as well. I didn't go to prison. Goodness. Um, I mean, like sobriety, many folks think like once you're in sobriety, life is a lot easier in some ways, perhaps, but it sounds like it had to get harder to get better. So now you're not with the alcohol, but now the relationship has to be with what now? If it's not with the drink, it's now with life. Yeah. And I think some of it is purely physical as well. It's, it's not all right. in the metaphysical and emotional space. I mean, some of it was all the years I've been drinking, I the opportunity loss of not doing other things. I didn't really know how to be a person. I didn't know how to. I, I can vividly remember needing to buy a tea towel and not knowing the mechanism of that. You know, where do you buy a tea towel or, or a, a vegetable strainer or something? But and picking up the pieces and the shame and the guilt and the fear and other people's opinions. You know, I had people crossing the street to scream in my face. So there was, there was all of that, and there were the behaviours that I'd been part of um, instigated in some places and the kind of fallout from some of those, particularly in other people's relationships and lives, and everyone's got an opinion. All the people who didn't have an opinion or whispered it when I was drinking had a very clear opinion. They were happy to shout in my face when I was sober. And it was almost like everything I I tried so hard to avoid was happening. It was happening in front of me. And I didn't have anyone and I didn't have anywhere and I didn't know what I was going to do. Right. But I knew I wasn't going to drink. I absolutely knew that. And, and I haven't done to this day. Right. And this is over 20 years later. I mean, there's a way in which yeah. that's amazing. I mean, but the, the tools you've had to learn along the way when someone's in your face and you're choosing not to drink, now you're feeling all the feelings, right? Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that you learned pretty quickly on how to survive the judgment, the shame and the guilt early on? 
I survived. Um, I'm AA. That really helped because it gave me a framework. There are some negatives with AA. Probably won't get into that here, but but I get that. But for me, it gave me a framework that I needed. I from right on, and it was the therapist I was telling about, Margaret. She told me I didn't have to be responsible for everything. You know, the person I'd hurt the most was myself. The person I needed to apologise to the most was myself. And some of what people were shouting at me was nothing to do with me. Nothing to do. It was them. It was up to them, and it was their choice, mm. and that really helped. So, um, for the first probably the first two years, I kept my head down. I also had lost my driving license and mid- lived in the middle of nowhere, so I was going nowhere anyway. But I kept my head down. I went back to uni because I, I realized I had to to get another job. I had to get another career. Um, yeah, exactly. There, there were there were physical things that had to happen. I had to find somewhere to live. I had to pay the bills. I rebuild a relationship with my children. I had to convince the doc to come back. I had to thank my ex-husband, but keep him as an ex because that had become a bit muddy. So all of those things that were happening. But I stuck very close to AA, really close. I went pretty much every day. And if people had an opinion, I allowed them to have it. But I only accepted behavior and the parts of their opinion that I felt belonged to me. So I'm struggling to think of an example without giving, without actually giving an example. But if somebody had an opinion of, of something I had done, and I had done it, I would apologise. I frequent, I had a huge and still have a bit of amnesia from about six months before I went into the DTs. And I can't quite remember a lot of things. But if I knew I'd done it, I would absolutely apologise. But it isn't something I would have done sober. So... I knew that it wasn't, I knew that I was very, very unwell and that all these people who'd had an opinion now were people who who weren't able to help me then and hadn't helped me. And they weren't people who I was willing to risk my sobriety for. So I right-sized it, took it in the moment. If it was mine, I owned it and apologised. If it wasn't mine, I allowed the person to offer it, but left it with them. And that's how I behaved it is, it is still pretty much how I behave now but you know it hurt because what I wanted to scream this is the fucking hardest thing I've ever done I didn't ask for any of this right, <laughs> right pretty much just off. fuck off <laughs> yeah yeah right. and when you get from there as well but I knew that wasn't really going to help and I also had to accept responsibility that I had done damage to other people I wouldn't have chosen to have done it sober but I did do it Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard then, thing I, to do like you're setting is, boundaries when you say right size you're setting some pretty hard boundaries and boundaries isn't just saying no it's saying yes but also boundaries is about responsibility too and you're taking that responsibility and what's on your side of, as AA would say keeping your side of the street clean yeah and I say that a lot actually I say it a lot now I've had to say, I've had to say it to someone today uh-huh. and a part of that is the cost for my sobriety you know to keep my sobriety and I've always seen it that way, you know, there but for the grace. Every time I walk in, in a city and I see people in the doorways and there but for the grace of God. And for me to keep my sobriety, I accept what's mine. I leave what isn't mine, but I am gracious with it to, 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 to the best of my ability. But I'm not saying it always felt like that on the inside. Right? Yeah, that's a hard and, and one. I'm, it was. And, and I did feel like screaming, you know, you didn't have my upbringing. You didn't, you know, you you because you, everyone seemed shinier than me I felt like right. I was somehow dirty and contaminated mm-hmm. everyone just kind of seemed shinier than me and I had to right size all of that as well and right size my own empowerment move out of that drama triangle move out of that victim space and and make some empowered positive choices while knowing 
I was building something that would take time. It really would and did. And it has in like over 20 years now, you spoke on some of the things that continue to work for you. What other things have now, if we speed up here to now, what do you think is most surprising of this road after all these years of being in recovery and living your life? Like amazing. It's a couple of things really. One is that the really simple phrases are the ones that I hold on to and that stay really true to me. You know, if you do what you did, you'll get what you got. I love that. And you do anything today that will cause you a fucking problem tomorrow i try really hard to live by that um say sorry just say sorry immediately i don't hold what you don't need so so they're the things i tend to live by the thing that's the most interesting to me i think is there's a bit in the big book of aa where it talks about a life beyond your wildest dreams and and i know that when i was drinking i might have said oh that would be lots of money or a big car or, or I, I don't know a super yacht or something but actually, I, I genuinely do have that. I couldn't imagine the life I live now then. I, I simply couldn't have imagined it, let alone sure. got to it. But it's about being able to keep promises to myself, about knowing that... I remember when the kids, my, my eldest two, when they were little, you know, to get to the zoo, you had to go past about 500 pubs. So I couldn't guarantee I could get there. I couldn't, I couldn't guarantee. I couldn't, in my own mind know that I could make that happen I couldn't even tell you where my closest pubs are now I just don't care I don't notice it's not it's not the biggest part of me but I know that if I say I'm going to do something there's a strong chance I can do it you know like I said I'd meet you tonight I'm here that is a miracle because there was a time I couldn't have been right that's amazing and I mean you've endured several setbacks in your life were there any medical setbacks that challenged your sobriety or made it impactful in a different way yeah there were so the the biggest impact I ever had and the thing I'm going to tell you in a minute is going to you're going to think really this was the one you, you led with color I've been in sobriety for about 18 months and I got the flu or food poisoning or, or something like that and I was properly ill like kind of vomiting and I was, mm. I was just ill in bed I was really honest the first time I'd been ill that wasn't alcohol related yeah and I was so angry I can remember I can remember thinking because I used to go to work when other people would have been in intensive care you know when I was drinking but there was something about the fact that I was doing all the right things and now I was sick and that wasn't fair and I was so I was so cross I don't think it had ever occurred to me that I could be ill and it not be self-inflicted oh and I'm, I'm quite strong. I'm quite, I'm, I'm little, but I'm mighty. You know, I'm quite strong. I'm quite I believe resilient. that. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite fit. I'm quite. But when my young, so I, I remarried in sobriety, and um, I married a guy called Andy. He's amazing. He brought the tea to me a minute ago, uh, <laughs> and we have two young daughters. And my, when my youngest daughter was one. And my toddler was two and a half. I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And and it still wasn't as much of a shock as when I had food poisoning that time, I've got to say. And the weird thing was, I wasn't that scared. And I've always had this feeling that if something was to come and get me, it would be the drink. Even now, even this far into sobriety, that if something was to do for me, it would be my addiction. But I I was very ill. I had a a bilateral, um, I had a double mastectomy with a bilateral LD reconstruction. I had a full old-fashioned hysterectomy. I had about three or four years of different surgeries, quite big surgeries. I was was quite ill for quite some time. And it was all very physical. You know, I had like drains sewn into my side and just miles of scarring, just like, like, like a badly made, 
quilt cover, you know, um, and, and, and all of that was very challenging. I was, I was still quite young and I had two very, very young children. So I couldn't lift them. They couldn't run towards me. They couldn't, because the way the scarring was, it was kind of across my front. It was horizontal. It was vertical. It was across my back. It was down my arms, down my sides, across my abdomen. Um, so it was, it was, it was very impactful and, and astonishingly painful. I was really mindful of the drugs. So things like, um, tramadol and the morphines and things like that. And I didn't find they helped either, actually. And I would rather have the pain than the drugs and the vomiting. So, but I, I made a really solid recovery and I'm perfectly fine. And I am certain it's because I don't drink. Cause at that point I hadn't had a drink for maybe 10 years, 12, 13 years, something like that. But because I don't drink, I don't smoke. I eat properly. I sleep properly. I get enough exercise. I, I don't do all the other damaging behaviours that come with drink. And I haven't done, and at that point, hadn't done for over a decade. And I think it just gave me a better place to start getting better from. Now, I know that in the last month or so, there's been a huge amount, particularly from Canada, a huge amount of conversation around how dangerous alcohol is and right. the, the direct correlation with cancer. And I know a lot of people said to me, oh, you know, it's, it's not fair you had cancer. Why do you think you? So why not me to start with? But also the way I drank and that I used to smoke heavily as well and, and the kind of lifestyle I led, I'm not surprised. I don't think that's necessarily what caused it, but I'm not surprised. But I think my recovery has been massively down to the fact that I just live better now. And I wouldn't have done if, if I was still drinking. And I would have drunk on it. I would have absolutely drunk on it. Yeah, you know, I mean, think of that, reason, you don't really need a reason, but that's a big one, right? That's a yeah, really big yeah. reason. And I would. You know, and yet here you are and you chose not to. I mean, and we now know that research supports that a healthier lifestyle and not drinking and purely abstinence really gives people a better chance of, of survival and rebounding and getting their mind back and their body back. You know, so what you're doing obviously proves the point that it could have been worse, you know, possibly your healing could have taken slower, whatever, but it's still a big diagnosis to survive from, you know, and yet. Yeah, yeah, it is, but I've never really carried it. I've got to be honest. So uh, people, even people who are really close to me don't necessarily know I've had cancer and it's not because it's a secret. It's just because I simply don't wear it. About, I think it was about two years ago, my husband ran a 10K uh, and he did it for one of the local charity cancer, um, uh, cancer charities. And he'd put on his LinkedIn post about he was running for, for Maggie's charity and it's because his, he'd nearly lost his wife to cancer 10 years earlier. And so many of my friends asked if he'd been married before. They, they didn't, they didn't realise it was me. Oh. But what was interesting is I didn't realise it was me either when I read it. Um, I just never really, or when we had like the COVID vaccinations came out, I was one of the first round of the vaccinations because I had a cancer history. Mm-hmm. And I can remember being in AA in my, my home group. Um, and, and one of the guys in there said to me, oh, why did you, you know, you've had your vaccination. Is, is that because of your the work you do? And I said, no, 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 it's because of my cancer. And he genuinely thought I'd just been diagnosed because he had no no idea because I didn't tell him. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I don't know quite what that is. It's certainly not something I feel disassociated from. Mm-hmm. I just don't choose to carry it with me. I don't identify with it at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And going through all of this kind of leads us into this other part of your life too. Now, you are a practicing psychotherapist. Um, yes. Rogerian, is that correct? Yes, Good old Rogerian. Rogers. Good old Rogers. Um, um, but now, you know, 
someone who's in recovery and this whole movement of non-alcoholic beverages. Now, you are not just dabbling in it. Tell me a little bit how that happened for you. What was, what was going on to do myth drinks and goat drinks? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think a solid round of neurodivergence is probably <laughs> part of what So when I, went, when I went back to uni, I was looking at my first degree, which had been in philosophy, and what I was going to do. And it was a really kind of pragmatic choice. You know, what could I possibly do where having had the best part of a year in the priory for addiction wasn't going to look bad on my CV? <laughs> um, just going back into finance wasn't going to be it. And actually, you know, Kantian ethics fits quite nicely into Rogerian theory. Sure. So I, that's what I did. And that's why I did it. And I don't know if I even really intended to go into therapy and, and become a therapist. I don't think I did, actually. But I had to do something, didn't I? I had to start somewhere. And I always remembered my therapist, Margaret, from the Priory saying to me, you know, sweetheart, whatever you do from here, it's going to be a step up out of the gutter. Have a go at anything. Um, and, and I've kept that. Yeah, I've kept that, that kind of curious. Um, so I went and I did that. Um, and, and over the years, I've done, you know, all sorts of CBT and DBT and CBTE and Mm-hmm. Jung and Yalom and I don't know Freud and sand tray as we were talking um I did love a sand tray transpersonal screen therapy um I mean you name it I've done it I do like a certificate so um I'd, uh, I'd like to be able to get my PhD before I'm 16 so so I did all of that and, and I'm perfectly happy doing it I quite like it I like the um I like the immediacy of it. I like the fact that I don't have ego in it and I'm just with someone. There's um, a poet by Orion Mountain Dreamer called The Invitation. And there's a part in that where it says, can you sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it? And I think that's what I do for a living. I think I allow people to be allowed, whatever that looks like, because that's what wasn't allowed to me. And until we can get to a point of allowing, and a lot of people don't want to observe things because they don't want to have to do the action yet, and they're not ready for the do, so they can't do the think, you know, and it's about allowing that space, I think, so that's kind of what I do. My husband is, um, so my, my husband doesn't drink either, but only because I don't drink, so I've been the greatest love story of all time. He asked me to marry him, and I said no, because he, he was a drinker, um, so he just never had another drink. Just stop. Um, for any, just stop. Just like that, overnight. So for any alcoholics listening, um, recovering, he clearly wasn't because he just stopped. <laughs> right. day, didn't spend a year in rehab. Never never worried about it again. Oh, beautiful. So, yeah, it is actually. It is. But it's interesting because when people say to him, oh, my goodness, you know, how did you do that? He gets quite defensive of me and he'll say, are you saying my wife's not worth as much as a G&T or a bottle of wine? Is that what you're – and, and he gets really – yeah, he gets quite defensive about it. Um, so we don't um, and he owns um, an international financial consultancy type of business and because of that we go to quite a few fancy things now my first husband absolutely wasn't in that space so my drinking when I did drink wasn't pretty it was more kind of sawdust on the floor and bar fights it was more that kind of space and I hadn't fitted in and I didn't feel catered for with my drinking and interestingly when I stopped drinking I also didn't feel like I was catered for, valued, or mm. or I, I felt like I was less than. You know, I was given like kids' drinks, like Diet Coke or Fanta or um, something like that, or water. Right. So much, so much, so much sparkling water. But I wasn't really catered for, and I didn't want the non-out wines or the non-out beers and lager because it was a bit too close to my drinking profile. 
Mm. And actually, I just didn't like them. And a lot of them aren't alcohol-free. They're dealkalized, and, and that mattered to me as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Andy and I had been out to another fancy do, and, and bear in mind, I hadn't really had this until I'd married Andy, so I hadn't had that in my upbringing or in, in the early part of my adult life. So it was all quite new and quite fancy. I remember being on the Orient Express, for example, one year, and being given sparkling water. Um, and you know, these kind of tasting menu dinners where there's lots of, things with like a jus of something and an exclusion of something unpronounceable and everyone had the wine to go with it and I had water. And, and and I just I just felt left out. Um anyway, so we'd been somewhere one evening and again it was fizzy water or elderflower or coke or something um that was inappropriate and irrelevant to the event. And I got up the next morning and I just said to him, look, how hard could it be to put a bloody drink in a bottle? I'm just gonna do it. And I think that's where the neurodivergence comes in. So <laughs> never worked Never worked in this field, never made anything in my life, have no connections in, in food and beverage at all, no idea how to actually make a drink. Bear in mind, I own water and coffee, so I don't drink anything else. Who better? Who better to set about this task? This was about five years ago, and I had a bit of a go at it, and I decided it was probably a bit harder than I thought it was. And then we had a pandemic, and actually my father took sick and died as well. So I was kind of – I had to go back down to the south of the country to care for him while he was while his, his life ended, and then kind of manage the estate and everything afterwards. And when I came back, we had the pandemic. So we're sort of maybe three years in now. So I'd, I'd, I'd had this idea five years ago. I'd had about a six-month stab at it, decided it was all a bit hard and I probably might do something else. Um, and then my father would die and then we'd had the pandemic. And I think it was towards the end of the pandemic and kind of that awful mix of homeschooling and, and that kind of it just went on for ages and, and right. everyone being in the house. I thought, maybe I'll pick this up again. Maybe I'll have a look at it again. And I had some money left in the account that I'd designated and I thought well I'll just do that how hard can it be how really hard, hard can it be <laughs> really really fucking hard okay that's how hard it is and I was I didn't even know what I was going to make that's the other thing I just I just didn't know what it was that I that was missing um and then one day it came to me it was joy joy was missing so it all felt a bit like health food it all felt a bit worthy like electric cars and knitting your own knickers you know it was all a bit kind of worthy yeah and I wanted something that was fun I wanted something that was like youthful and joyous and um nostalgic um and how I remembered fun being so for me that was always going to be Malibu always that kind of club tropicana wham and once I knew that I knew it and then I knew exactly what I was going to do so what I, what I couldn't do was go and buy a bottle of Malibu and try it. Bear in mind, I've not had a drink for 20 years. So I sort of made a memory, I guess. And I think that's why it's been so successful. Because when people drink it, they go, oh, that took me right back. That took me right back to when I was 16. And I don't know if it does taste like Malibu does, because I don't, I don't know what Malibu tastes like now. But that's what I made. So I made that. And at the same time, I made a dark one. So I made like this coconut rum type spirit and a, and a dark one, like a spice kraken type as well great in coffee absolutely great in like a calypso coffee or something and I didn't know what to do with it so that that's that's how I got to that and that was a year ago so it's just one year ago that's where I ended up with these these bottles in my garage and my husband's like you know he's, he's, he's so patient my husband but he's like sweetheart you know you are going to do something with these aren't you <laughs> there is they are going they are doing something I was like I don't know because then I felt like well what if no one likes them you know it's like waiting for have a birthday party and no one's going to come and then I don't know if I could cope with that level of of distraught rejection so um 
Andy entered them into the IWSC for me, the International Wine and Spirits, and I won the gold and then I went on to win the global non-alc trophy as well. So this was all with it. I hadn't launched. This was in the first couple of weeks. Wow. So that was the start of that. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're like, not just one drink, we'll do another one. And those were also (laughs) in your garage, right? This was probably a bit of an error of judgment on my part. Um, I... In liquid formulation, it hadn't really occurred to me that these would be so different. And and actually, initially, when I launched, they were all launched under the same kind of company. But I was in a health food shop one day, and I was looking for um, an energy drink for me. I've got, you know, I've got thousands of children. I've got four kids. It feels like more. Uh, And I'm busy time and you know and I wanted and and what was interesting was everything that was on the shelves as an energy drink like with claimable outcomes was aimed at men not me and everything that was aimed at women came in tiny cans with flowers on the front and either had ingredients which were not claimable not scientifically claimable so things like ginseng or, or something like that or they were designed to calm me down which struck me as a little bit gender bias you know I'll do calm down there have a cup of tea and do some yoga it's all I wanted I wanted what the men had in theirs but I didn't want it to do me any harm and I didn't want it to taste awful right. you know so and, and I, as I went to the people who were doing the um, the coconut one for me and I said come on so if I can make a drink that doesn't taste shit does what it says so has positive claimable outcomes and is completely natural can we make this happen and they're like don't know probably let's see what do you want it to do how hard can it be (laughs) how hard really bloody hard um (laughs) so i wanted it to i'm postmenopausal surgical menopause because of my hysterectomy and i wanted it to give me actual real energy with caffeine i wanted it to have to to support my immune system my heart function my metabolism my energy yield my testosterone uptake my libido i don't know why people think women when they hit 50 give up sex but i certainly didn't <laughs> um, and, and i wanted all these claimable outcomes so I knew how I wanted that to be. So I wanted zinc and B vitamins, coenzyme Q10 to create a natural energy cycle. I wanted natural caffeine from green coffee bean. And I didn't want a single, not one, bloody flower on the tin. None. <laughs> Thank you. So I am a Capricorn, so I put a huge goat head on the front of my tins. And I didn't really do much with the launch of that. So they're now in the garage um, as myth launching. And after about three months of myth launching, Andy's like, we are doing something with that 1,500 cans in there as well, aren't we? So I'm just still kind of launching that. That's taking longer to get some traction, I think. Um, but it's, it, you know, we're, we're making headway. We're making headway with it. That's so amazing. So what are you learning about yourself through this process of how can it be hard, fucking hard, and yet here you are doing it still with all this other stuff going on? I've learned that things aren't fair always, you know. So I made really good drinks. It's a bit like when I got sober and I wanted to scream at people, would you just fuck off? I'm doing my best. I I feel a bit like that. It's, you know, why when people can help, do they choose not to? Why are people rude? Why are people rude? You know, they say you're phony back and they don't. Not everything is on merit. So you might have the best, but if you don't have the funders or the backers or the connections, then it's not coming your way. Mm. Um, you trust everyone. Mm-hmm. I've learned that I have an infinite capacity 
but that I am a finite resource. So sometimes I do kind of have to say, you know, although I feel I have all this capacity and positivity and energy, I need to treat myself as a resource and not kind of use it all up um, and, and get some balance. I guess the that kind of addictive nature, you know, mm-hmm. is, is very find that in this in this kind of in in the space of work like that I've learned that what got me here so I've I've got got these two brands really from concept to global because they're 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 experts now within a year on my own I haven't got a team or anything Um, but I know that what got me here won't get me to the next stage but I kind of don't know what that is (laughs) I don't know people are asking me things and I'm googling it as they're asking me the question you know I don't really know what I need to do next and it feels like I need to know the answer in order to ask the question and and I don't know where to take that or how to do that so it some of it's about being a bit slow and a bit gentle and learning lots and lots of mistakes um lots of experiential learning and emergent strategies my husband calls it mm-hmm. um I think Fuck ups and crying is also is also fair. I've learned that you, that most days now I have to choose who I let down because there's only one of me. So sometimes it's my friends, sometimes it's my kids, sometimes it's my husband, sometimes it's myself, mm. sometimes it's my business. And I'm still self-funding. So I have that kind of constant dialogue in my head of, is this a sensible thing to do, to still be running a clinic in order to use all the money that comes from that to prop up two loss-making businesses. Does that make sense? What's the opportunity loss on that? What am I doing next? Have I still got faith? But those kind of questions, you know, waking up at two in the morning, you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Or why are you doing it? And why are you making everyone do it with you? <laughs> My poor husband looks like he's holding on to dear life the whole time. But, you know, hearing you, there's a resilience to you. But I also wonder, you asked this question of yourself. And the whole point of this was finding joy and fun. Are you having some joy and fun in this process? Most of the time, most of the time I am. So I'm just about to fly to Dubai because my coconut myth has been... Um, I've been asked if I'll take it to the embassies wow. for the King's Coronation parties because that's what they want to serve, which is very cool indeed. I get to do some fancy, fancy stuff, you know, with nice dresses and new good lipstick, and I've got good nails today. You do, uh, I do. But to see them from space, I think um, that's really cool. I think it can, it can. I've got a bit of a fear of aging. Actually, I've got a massive fear of aging. Actually, not a bit of a fear. I've got a fear that I'm going to grow a cardigan and know about bedding plants. <laughs> And kind of, if you see if you see me grow one, can you make sure that you tell me? Yes, I'll set a boundary around that. Yeah, set a boundary around cardigans. And I think something about doing something like this, where it's such a massive learning experience across many different areas, kind of holds holds some of that back, you know. And I'm quite vain, so some of it is kind of having to having to make sure you know you've, everything's still where it needs to be, and you're not just kind of letting yourself go. Um, that kind of matters to me as well. Um, staying sharp, staying relevant—that matters. I would say that the spirits aren't as much fun as the energy drinks, the the, fun- the functional drinks. They're more sort of functional than the energy drink sector. Um, I do some really cool shit with that, you know, DJs and um, a lot around the LGBTQI community. About to go and spend a weekend in a field with 400 gay women doing the Out and Wild Festival. Um, having just done the women's rugby in Wales. Uh, I, uh, some great new sports, some esports, some gaming. Because essentially GOAT, which is the energy drink, that that is there to represent everybody who isn't represented. So when I, when I made GOAT, 
And, and I realized it was a different brand. I was going to have to brand it differently and all of those things. I remember saying to my best friend, who is awesome, I can't put myself on this because I'll devalue my own product. Who is going to buy an energy drink, you know, from a 50-year-old woman with a gray Volvo? Who is going to buy that? <laughs> I'm just like, I am, I am the opposite of inspiring. And then I realized, and, and Jem said to me, she said, but Colette, you're like everyone. Everyone feels like that. You know, most people aren't going to go whitewater rafting before supper. They're just going to try and get the dog out, get the kids to school, try not to fall asleep later in front of a box set and get through a mountain of work. That's what people do. And those people don't feel represented and don't feel they have a voice. So I started talking to people who are doing other things in life rather than base jumping and whitewater rafting. (laughs) There's a speed knitting competition in Finland set to heavy metal music every year. Wow. There's a coal carrying competition in the north of England. There's a licorice festival. There's a lady who's about to be the oldest lady to single handedly row the Atlantic. Red Bull don't care about that, you know? They don't care about that story. But I do. I really do. And I did have a customer say to me a few weeks ago now, she emailed me to say that she's got all the way to the end of a box set without falling asleep. So thank you. And I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> oh my God, I love that so much. Yeah, I so. mean, it really is finding your joy and having some faith. And, you know, you you asked how hard can it be? Fucking hard. And, and you're doing it and having a good time at the same time, which is lovely to hear. I wanted to ask one more thing. You know, being in recovery and now yeah. being an entrepreneur in the non-alcoholic beverage, alcohol beverage industry, which is fast and growing, right? Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who's like early in recovery or generally in recovery about non-alcoholic drinks? There should be a warning label on there. What do you think? Interestingly, my sobriety story doesn't play well in the UK with my drinks and selling them because in the UK, it's very much not around sobriety, but around kind of flexi drinking and choice and those mm-hmm. kind of things. Alternatives, right. Yeah, because the, 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 the my drinks are still sold through the same channels as, as traditional alcohol. And I didn't expect that. I was I was quite shocked by that, actually. I was shocked that it's still kind of the, the big alcohol companies who own and manage a lot of this process. I will say that in early sobriety, and by early I mean the first 10 years, I absolutely wouldn't have drunk an alcohol-free wine, beer, lager, cider. Alcohol-free spirits didn't exist then, so but I, I wouldn't have drunk those because it was too close to my drinking profile. I also would, would urge people to be really mindful of reading the label of what alcohol-free is and isn't. So is it actually alcohol-free? Is it dealkalized? Is it 0.5%? Is it 3%? Is it just marginally less than 3%? That Those kind of questions. If my thing had been white wine, then I wouldn't drink an alcohol-free white wine now. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't take that risk, even now, even this far out. There are still other health issues, maybe with some things, either too much sugar or sulfites. Or, there's all these other things as well. It's, it's, it's not just alcohol. It's about where will it take you? Will it take you into the, the pubs or the bars when you wouldn't necessarily have been there? Will it take you back to the same places? What was your drinking You know, you can choose not to have a drink because it's just not that drink you're having. Yeah, so you're just not having that one because you're pregnant, you're on medication, you're driving, you're having a night off or whatever. That's different from someone like me who's alcoholic. 
that that's a different thing so I have to think really really carefully so I made drinks that for me I didn't drink when I started drinking a lot I'd only drunk when I was much much younger Mm -hmm. and and really were kind of good vibe party drinks you know um that were were kind of occasion based Um, and I'm a long time sober but if I felt there was a problem then I would just stop. And I am really conscious that probably for the first time in sobriety, I'm around alcohol a lot more than I ever have been because alcohol is sitting in the same places that the non-alcs are sitting. That's right. And I did very recently, and, and this is what I am, I'm really cross about this, and I don't know who needs to make this different, but someone bloody does. And very recently, I was around some hard seltzers, the hard waters, and I didn't even know they were a thing. And they just look like sparkling waters. And they've got they've got vodka or something in them. But if you look at the cans, it's really not obvious. It's not obvious what they are. Oh, wow. um, marketed in a way that it's not clear. So I think you just have to be, for me, people do what they want to do. But for me, I am mindful of anything at all that I'm going to put into my body, anything at all. Mm-hmm. because I do believe that it's like standing in front of a train, a really fast-moving intercity train. It's the first carriage that would do the damage. That's when I've still got choice, so I take that seriously, and I'm really mindful. I think that's really important to 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 state, especially as, as a person who really knows what this means to be in recovery and sober, and also knowing what is coming out, because we are still trying to catch up and understand this non-alcoholic, revolution in some ways. There's sober curious alternatives, wellness, people don't want the calories, which is great, more opportunity and options and choices, but also for folks who are in recovery, such as yourself, really have to be mindful. And it sounds like to educate themselves and really Mm -hmm. look at the labels. But we know that... See what's out out there. Really read the labels. I I was reading something the other day, it had sodium benzoate in it. I didn't even know people still put that in things. Yeah. Wow. I know. And and so and, and I was quite shocked by that. So mm-hmm. I think just to be aware, you know. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you talking a lot about kind of your arc on how you came here. And there's some other projects you're doing too, right? There's a book and a podcast. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I've got I've got the best friends in the world. I really have. Uh, so Gemma and Angela. Angela is a doctor, a UK doctor, and she works in general practice. She worked in end of life practice, and she is now specialised in sexology, clinical sexology. She always says we are not talking masturbation. We are talking sex toys. We are talking medicine. <laughs> she, she gets like that, um, and then she goes on to talk about sex toys and masturbation um, as medicine. Then, right. As medicine. Um, her, her text messages always make me smile, always bring a smile to my face. And then Gemma is a former UK strongest woman and a coach. She's actually just going back into competition now um, in a couple of months. And these two women are my best friends. They're also um, astonishingly tall. Um, I'm going to say this just in case you ever see a picture of us together. I am not sitting down. Okay? I am five foot two and they are both well over six foot. I know they're very, very tall ladies. And we were talking one day, we were talking about kind of the the points of the triangle of where our work meets, I guess, and the different bits, how we can take the same question from someone and how we would look at it differently. And I know in my clinic, for example, I will sometimes say to women, you know, is that a physical issue? You know, is it hormonal? Is it, you know, not everything is metaphysical just because I'm a therapist. In fact, a lot of things aren't if you look at kind of polyvagal theory. Mm -hmm. And I know Jem would say in, in her coaching, well, you know, 
there are things I can't coach physically or nutritionally because that's an emotional problem. And of course, Angela um, would say, well, that's a, that's a medical, that's a prescribing issue. Can we look at that? So we're sort of talking about, about kind of the, those points and where they intercede, where they meet, where, they, where they're um, complementary. And we said, why don't we do something with that? So um, mindful that Angela can clear a room in seconds because she has no filter whatsoever. <laughs> and Gemma can lift a car for reps. And I'm really short. I wasn't quite sure what we, it was. A bit, a bit like a dysfunctional Charlie's Angels, really. <laughs> um, so we've, we've done one season of a podcast just as a pilot and we're just going into a, a properly managed one now. And we've just written a book that we're just sorting out publishing, just on the audio for. And it really is this... It's not a manual to wellness. It's nothing like that. It's about demystifying who we are and what those positions are. So what what, what could you expect if you came into my clinic and sat in one of my chairs? What what could you expect? What is a sand tray? Who needs those mini bonsais? You know, what would you what would you expect if you went to Jem's gym? Because it's it's a weightlifting gym. It's quite daunting. She doesn't find it daunting because she lives in there the whole time. But you know, it's black and red, and there are bits of what look like you know car parts laying around that people are lifting. Or if you go to Angela, you know, what what can you go to a doctor for? What what is available? You know, I remember Angela saying to me once, you know, women come to her with with sexual issues, like please it just hurts or it's dry or it's and she's just like, could we elevate this to something we enjoy, not just something we survive? And I guess I feel like that about my work. Mm. Can we elevate life into something we enjoy? not just survive and I know Jem feels like that about people who are inhabiting their bodies you know can we move away from all this hurt I love this so that's what we're just working on putting together now um we're not quite sure how it's going to look when it's when it's kind of a a, an offered well we're never going to know how it's going to look actually we're just going to start and see what happens (laughs) yeah how hard can it be <laughs> and Angela really has got ADHD. She is like a rave full of squirrels. She really is. <laughs> well, this sounds is amazing. Awesome. I mean, you've got so many hands in, in so many different things, but what a way to experience joy and so much more because you have such a long history and foundation of recovery and mm-hmm. choosing different things that provide excitement and all of that, I think, is amazing. And you are living proof that it can happen. And it can be fucking hard, as you said, but that doesn't that doesn't stop you. It doesn't. Yeah. I have to say the hardest days sober are not as hard as the hardest days drunk. And I, I mean that. That's not a soundbite. That's not. And, you know, I watch people who are still drinking. Because one of the things I was told when I stopped drinking is my life would be boring and I'd be boring. But I watch people sitting in the same pub telling the same stories with the same drink in the same way that they've been doing for 20 years. And they haven't done any of the things that I've done because I think the drink just wants to keep you to itself, you know, mm. doesn't want you experience, it doesn't want you experiencing a bigger world with more in it. I do very much personify alcohol. I, 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 I really do have a, a quite a, a, a big philosophical problem with it. So for me, what I, what I paid for, and I do think I paid for my sobriety, was freedom. That's, oh, that's why yeah. I get choice. to choose. I get to choose how my day ends. Right. I get to choose what of choice which is amazing i don't drink other people's drinks and piss in the bed i don't do anything like that anymore i get to choose Mm -hmm. and that's what i do with that choice you know and how that choice pans out that's always in the fog you know that's always like (laughs) sydney banks you know it's always in the fog three feet past you but it's my choice and i didn't have that before 
I think the Chinese have a saying, a man takes a drink, a drink takes a drink, and the drink takes the man. And I think that that's quite true. Agreed. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. How do people reach you or find your products of Myth and Goat? Exciting. They've got a very unusual name. So if you just Google my name, you'll find me. I think I'm about the only one on the planet. Um, it's good to want to go into like spying or something, isn't it? <laughs> Secret <laughs> service. Um, Maybe tomorrow. But if you if you just Google myth drinks or goat drinks, um, it'll come up from that. But you can find me on my name, find me on LinkedIn, find me anywhere at all. And I'm always up for a chat as well. Um, I see and, that. Uh, and a bit of a share. <laughs> Give you the gab. <laughs> well, I love it. It was it's such a pleasure. So thank you so much for your time, Colette. The invite. Yes, and best of luck on your travels and best of luck with all the rest of your endeavors. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Maylee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.